Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. This is not a typical episode of this podcast. Instead of an interview or short-form audio essay, I'm going to read a long-form article that I wrote. The purpose of the article is to lay out the process I use to help people make this specialization decision. I want this process to be available to more people. So I wrote up an article, it's about 5,000 words, that describes the process, and here I'm reading it to you for those who would prefer to consume it in that format. Think of it like a sort of mini audiobook. You can also find this article on my website if you go to philipmorganconsulting.com, go to the bottom, look for the free articles on positioning, specialization, and lead generation, click through to that and you'll see this article, which is titled A Framework for Deciding How to Specialize. A strong market position comes from a decision to specialize, followed by a few years of disciplined follow-through. There are five kinds of market positions that professional services firms can cultivate, and five corresponding ways of specializing. But how to decide where to specialize in the first place? Some of you will land on a good specialized focus. Your intuition or naturally assertive decision-making style will take you there, perhaps with some iteration along the way, but you'll get there without any outside help. This article is for the rest of you. Those that benefit from process and structure, or at least an idea of how to approach a high-stakes decision that you've never made before. I have a framework I use when I advise clients on this process. I'll share that framework with you here. It's simple enough to tackle on your own, but if you want expert, empathetic guidance applying it, you might consider one of my group workshops or a private coaching engagement. First, you'll need to understand the three ways in which you could decide the missionary-mercenary spectrum and risk profile. I elaborate on some of this in my books, The Positioning Manual for Technical Firms and Specializing Without Failure, but this article should help you understand this framework enough to use it in your own business. Let's talk about the three decision approaches. When deciding how to specialize, you are looking for an advantage of some kind. These advantages break down into three categories. First, a head start of some kind. Second, an interest or connection of some kind. And finally, what I call an entrepreneurial theory. Let's talk about a head start. You might specialize in a way that corresponds with a head start in your business. For example, a generalist developer that has worked with 15 clients, five of which are clustered in finance, might decide to specialize vertically in the finance industry because their experience working with finance clients represents a head start. They understand the industry jargon better than most generalists would. They understand how software products in that vertical tend to be commissioned, funded, bought, and managed. They may understand exactly how business problems tend to be solved using custom software in the finance industry. All of this experience moves our generalist developer closer to a domain expert, someone who can assertively lead the sales conversation and perhaps the resulting project. Now, they may not be all the way there to that domain expert leadership position, but they have a head start. A developer that has a deep understanding of working with regulated data on cloud platforms might specialize horizontally in that domain. 
because this has real value to lots of businesses, and few other developers find it worth learning about. Like our generalist developer, who decides to specialize in finance, this horizontally specialized developer has an expertise head start that may allow them to lead a sales conversation and add value to the project that few other developers can. These are just two of a multitude of possible examples of building on a head start. Let's talk about the next kind of advantage, an interest or connection. Instead of identifying a head start, you might identify an interest or feeling of connection to a market vertical or problem domain, and that might be how you decide to specialize. Before we go any further, just a short sidebar. I recommend that you investigate all three of these decision approaches and choose the one that is the best fit for you. So ultimately, you might pursue an interest or connection instead of a head start, but you would most likely do so after identifying and investigating all your potential head starts, all your potential interests, all your entrepreneurial theories. An interest is exactly what you would think. You find a market vertical or problem domain interesting. Okay, a longer sidebar. Most developers would define their primary interest as building software. I'm not going to be able to adequately support the argument I'm about to make here because it's tangential to the point of this article. But coders who have made the transition to consultant combine their interest in software with an interest in a market vertical or a business problem. Now, of course, you can specialize in software, in a technology platform, which I would define here as a language, a framework, or an actual platform. In fact, most developers default to platform specialization. It is the place their interest most easily leads them to. Like the other four ways of specializing, platform specialization has its pros and cons. But most of my clients hire me to help them when the cons of platform specialization have become very apparent and very painful to them. So I'm going to talk about those cons a moment. The primary drawback of platform specialization is fairly rapid commoditization of the skill set. For an example, Picture someone who became interested in iOS app development in the year 2010. The timing of their interest would have led them into that platform specialization at an ideal time. Demand was strong, and the supply of iOS development talent was relatively low. This naturally resulted in premium rates, and on the client side of things, lots of urgency in the sales process. We need an app like yesterday! Developers, really anybody who faces this situation, would, of course, have no compelling incentive to figure out for the, for, for the benefit of their business how to do lead generation or to develop a strongly differentiated value proposition. Why would you? You're busy making apps and billing hours. It's just too easy to enjoy a medium-term bubble that works in your favor. Elsewhere, I've said it makes you essentially lazy. I view this as a significant drawback of platform specialization because a talent market, like our iOS talent market example here, tends to quickly attract a greater supply of lower cost talent. I mean, people who live in lower cost of living areas and therefore can discount their rate as as a byproduct of that lower cost of living. And this new supply of low cost talent commoditizes the market. 
developers who could previously command premium rates for no reason other than having rare valuable skills start facing rate pushback and longer, more difficult sales cycles. Of course, our iOS developer in this example can move on to the next hot platform before the air completely leaks out of the iOS bubble. In fact, there will almost certainly always be demand for iOS talent. I'm not saying that the demand ever goes away completely. I'm just saying that the bubble-like quality of the market for iOS skills cools off and it becomes a commoditized market for talent. And in a commoditized market, you don't have buyers just dying to hire anybody with a pulse and an ability to write iOS apps. Thus ends my sidebar rant on the cons of platform specialization. Again, it has benefits, but it has that one significant drawback. Each of the five ways of specialization has pros and cons, but the eventual commoditization of most platform specializations is one good reason to consider specializing in a market vertical or a problem domain instead of specializing in a platform. This means you will want to explore other forms of interest and connection that you may have outside of just being interested in a particular tech platform. So what verticals do you find interesting? Where do you feel some sort of connection to a type of client? What evergreen business problems do you have an interest in solving? Again, this interest is something outside the world of software development, it's, and it's a key prerequisite to making this coder-to-consultant transition. A few examples. Some of these are people I've worked with who I won't name. Others are people I've interviewed on this very same podcast who I will mention by name. So when you hear me mention a name here, it's an example of someone who's found an interest aside from their interest in software development. So imagine that you, like a client of mine, find that maritime shipping is an oddly fascinating business. This interest could pull you into a unique specialization, one where you learn to build software specific to the maritime shipping industry. Or another example, Corey Quinn, who I interviewed not that long ago on this podcast, his interest in the financial and business implications of cloud billing, a business problem, led him to cultivate a horizontal specialization in just this area. That's episode 119 of this podcast. As an example of connection, I think of Evan McBroom, whose connection to Christianity via his personal faith led him to focus his marketing and communications agency on churches. That's, ep that's episode 100 of this podcast, if you want to listen back to Evan's story. A strong interest or feeling of connection can be a very powerful ally in your journey towards a desirable market position, and it can compensate for lacking a head start. Now, of course, there's a trade-off. If you have no head start, or if you have a natural head start that you choose not to pursue, your interest or feeling of connection can compensate, but at the cost of the effort and time required to build some other kind of advantage, some expertise advantage, or something else that is of value to your clients. Let's talk about an entrepreneurial theory. Instead of identifying a head start or looking for some form of interest or connection, you might pursue an entrepreneurial theory. Matt Rogish of Reactive Ops, who I interviewed on this podcast in episode 120, 
He was, in essence, pursuing an entrepreneurial theory when he and his team scrapped a significant amount of custom tooling to move their DevOps-as-a-service offering to Kubernetes. They had no particular head start with Kubernetes because at the time that they embraced it, it was early adopter phase technology. In other words, nobody really had a head start other than the core dev team. Additionally, this specialization decision that Matt made was not based on any particular interest or connection. Instead, it was a measured bet on technology that had not yet achieved mainstream status. The purpose of the bet was to achieve efficiencies that made Reactive Ops core service offering better. So when you pursue an entrepreneurial theory, you are seeking advantage less from your personal characteristics or background and more from the strength of your business model or your marketing. So returning to the example of Reactive Ops, when Matt Rogish talks about the decision to forego the sunk cost of years of custom tooling and go instead all in on Kubernetes, I think you'll hear in his voice a calculated but very limited personal interest in Kubernetes itself. What motivated him was a vision for how Kubernetes could make his business model stronger in the medium to long term. Again, that interview, episode 120 of this podcast, if you listen to it, you'll hear Matt talk about how in the short term, the switch to Kubernetes was actually costly for them because in addition to the internal retooling cost where they replaced you know, internal custom code with Kubernetes, there was also a customer education cost that he had to bear. This cost was worth it in light of the benefits to the business model. And the limited personal interest that Kubernetes might have held for Matt was worth it in light of the business upside. Let's talk about the missionary-mercenary spectrum. I'm not sure there's any scientific basis for this, but it's useful to think about your motivation for being self-employed along a spectrum. On the one end are the, quote, missionaries. I'm one of those. We seek meaning in our lives, and our businesses need to reflect this search for meaning. I'll let Harvard Business Review take over for me here in defining the missionary-mercenary spectrum. HBR says, What's the difference between missionaries and mercenaries? As Dorr explained to an audience at Stanford Business School, mercenaries are, quote, opportunistic. They're, quote, all about the pitch and the deal and are eager to sprint for short-term payoffs. Missionaries, on the other hand, are, quote, strategic. They're all about the, quote, big idea and partnerships that last. And they understand that, quote, the, this business of innovation is something that takes a long time. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Mercenaries have a lust for making money, while missionaries have a lust for making meaning. Mercenaries obsess about the competition and fret over financial statements, while missionaries obsess about customers and fret over values statements. Mercenaries display an attitude of entitlement and revel in the, quote, aristocracy of the founders, while missionaries exude an attitude of contribution and welcome good ideas wherever they originate. Mercenaries strive for success. Missionaries aspire to success and significance. That's the end of that HBR quote, which I linked to in the show notes. In my work with self-employed software developers, I see few people on the extreme mercenary end of this spectrum. And by the way, that HBR article, I think, portrays uh, mercenaries in a little bit of a cartoonish light. They're not really like that, but 
they are th- this is a sort of personality type and i believe the dramatic potential upside of things like digital products are more attractive to mercenaries and that sort of siphons off the supply of mercenaries that i might see in my business it just it, it's a sort of filter that means i'm going to see fewer people who are coming from that mercenary perspective the relatively tame upside of a healthy services business i think is less attractive to mercenaries. Or uh, folks with a more mercenary orientation pursue an entrepreneurial theory and perhaps build a team the way Matt Rogish did. I do, in my work, see lots of, quote, missionaries. And you might overhear them saying things like the following. I love helping software teams improve their process and communication. Or... After I encountered Elixir, I never wanted to use any other language because of how effortless Elixir made stuff that's a pain in the ass in other languages. Or finally, when I find out that a big e-commerce operation does crazy shit like deploying straight to production without a proper release process, I want to shake them and tell them how important and simple a good release process is. This is the language of the missionary. Software developer missionaries are less likely to specialize based on an entrepreneurial theory and most likely to choose based on a head start or some sort of interest or connection they have. Please remember, (laughs) these are general patterns. These are not rules. What I'm presenting you here is a framework to help you think through what's ideal for you, not some sort of employee policy manual for what you can and cannot do while you're working for yourself as a specialist. There's one more important factor that affects how you might choose to specialize, and that is your risk profile. Let's talk about your risk profile. Your decision to specialize should excite you. It should not totally stress you out. Specializing makes things better, but it does not make all aspects of your business easier. You still have to deliver results for clients, sell with confidence, and find ways to connect and build trust with prospects. The energy and positive outlook required for these business functions would be drained away if you specialized in a highly risky way that made you uncomfortable and stressed out. There is almost certainly a difference between how much risk you can actually handle and how much risk you can comfortably handle. In other words, most people can actually handle more risk than they are comfortable with. But how much risk you can comfortably handle is a threshold you should respect as you consider how to specialize. How do you determine where this threshold is? First, unbrainwash yourself. If you consume much press coverage of startups, you will have been exposed to oversimplified tropes where risk-seeking founders bet it all on a moonshot and reap their reward when, against all odds, they succeed meaning they get to take on a ton of debt and give up control of their company to investors. This is a distorted view of entrepreneurial risk-taking. In most services businesses, the coupling between risk-taking and the payoff for that risk-taking is much closer. A courageous but risky decision can pay off in weeks or months. Extreme levels of risk-taking are not required to run a successful services business. To be sure, some level of risk-taking is inherent in working for yourself, and some additional level of risk-taking can pay off in the context of a services business. But in the world of services, 
reducing risk for your clients can actually create a ton of value. A somewhat risk-averse services business owner can leverage their own fluency with avoiding risk in a way that benefits their clients. So before you assess your own relationship to risk, make sure you're not looking at yourself with a distorted mirror. Second, think of risk as having two facets. Your emotional response to risk is your risk tolerance, and your actual financial ability to sustain a loss is your risk capacity. You may have a high risk tolerance, again, that's the emotional response, and a low risk capacity, the the actual financial ability. You might have the exact inverse or some other mix or blend of these two factors. Risk tolerance and risk capacity both increase or decrease your ability to handle risk, and I combine them together using a simple proprietary algorithm into what I call your risk profile. Third, and finally, realistically assess your past behavior with regard to risk. For example, you might ask yourself, what degree of risk have I taken with my financial decisions in the past? This is a better measure of your risk tolerance than hypothetical questions, although hypothetical questions derived from what's called prospect theory are actually useful too. So you might ask yourself something like the following. In addition to whatever I own, I have been given $1,000. I am now asked to choose between a sure gain of $500 or a 50% chance to gain $1,000 and a 50% chance to gain nothing. Which do I choose? After you've done your level best to realistically understand your risk profile, you set a risk threshold. I have a way of doing this with my clients and with workshop participants but you could do a lot worse than assigning yourself a score on a simple three-point scale. Later, when you apply this framework by identifying all your specialization options, you can score those options on the same three-point scale and eliminate any that exceed your personal risk threshold. There you have it. These are the three core elements that I weave together when I help clients through the process of deciding how to specialize. So first, finding your advantage. Second, the missionary-mercenary spectrum. And third, your risk profile. The specialization decision becomes easier when you explore these three areas. Now, to be clear, this decision rarely becomes a no-brainer. It rarely becomes emotionally untaxing. If you've been operating as a generalist, specializing always requires courage, and then lots of discipline to follow up. Now, if you happen to be angry or frustrated at how being a generalist has harmed your business, that emotional energy can fuel a swift specialization decision. So I've seen this a number of times. This article and the work I've done around the specialization decision may make things easier for you, but in general, the decision is always at least a moderately difficult one. And that's not surprising given how important a decision it is. The second part of this article is me turning this framework into a linear process that you can follow. I hope this helps you apply the framework to your own specialization decision making. Let's talk about applying this framework. Bear in mind, I am reading to you (laughs) a piece of writing. So Hopefully this will be uh, relatively easy to follow through the process that I'm about to describe, but if not, you can always reference the written version of this article. 
To apply this framework, I recommend you go through the following process. First, do an inventory. Second, set a risk threshold. Third, narrow down that inventory. Fourth, do some validation. And fifth, decide. I'll expand on each of these processes, each of these steps in the process. This is the same process I take my clients through when they're deciding how to specialize. Let's talk about that inventory. My advice to you here is as old as the venerable pros-cons list. Write it down. When you're facing a high-stakes decision, your mind can play tricks on you. My mind plays tricks on me when I'm facing a high-stakes decision. We can second-guess our previously clear thinking. That's why you should create a written inventory. Do it in a spreadsheet so that you can easily sort things later. You might ask, what goes on this inventory? I would suggest inventorying every project you've been involved in as an employee, freelancer, or consultant. Those all create meaningful experience. You want to create an inventory that is both relevant and has a high signal-to-noise ratio. This inventory captures previous experience that might be relevant to your new focus, Of course, you don't know what that new focus is, so your inventory should capture everything that might be relevant. However, if at some point you dramatically leveled up in your work, you can probably exclude that old pre-level up experience from your inventory. If at some point you had one of those mid-career epiphanies that cause you to dramatically change direction, you can probably exclude that pre-pivot experience. The largest inventory I've ever seen captured about 150 projects. One that is this lengthy could easily take six or eight hours to complete. But it's time well spent. Yours probably won't be that long. So capture as much detail as possible. Each row in your inventory should include the following. So what I'm doing here is describing the columns that you would want to have in in your spreadsheet inventory. Client name the vertical the client is in. For example, manufacturing would be a vertical. A brief project description. What did you do for the client? Made a new website, created an API for something, etc. What was the impact of your work? For example, this improved user morale, reduced time to enter claims by 300%, helped a client compete with this competitor. Whatever it was, describe briefly the impact of your work. Profitability. That's profitability to you. Was the work profitable or did you lose your shirt? This is something that I would encourage you to score on a three-point scale. If the project was highly profitable by your standards, you would give it a three. If it was highly not profitable by your standards, you would give it a one. Next, describe interest. How much do you enjoy working with clients like this one that you're describing on this row of the inventory? Or how much do you enjoy solving problems like this one that you're describing in your inventory? Again, rate that on a three-point scale. Create a column for access. How many contacts do you have in this client's vertical? How accessible is the vertical to you? Again, this does not, this actually should not be an absolute number. Go with that three-point scale again. Three is going to be a lot, one is going to be not very many, and two is going to be somewhere in between. Finally, describe credibility. What kind of credibility came out of this particular project? Again, a three-point scale is a good way to 
quantify this. Thus far, we've created an inventory that really is about looking backwards and creating the raw material that will help you identify a head start of some kind. Now let's look at that second way of deciding, which is to identify an interest, even or interest or connection, even if that interest or connection does not correspond to a head start of some kind. So next you need to extend your inventory. You're going to explore areas of interest where you have no previous experience, and you should include any entrepreneurial theories as well. So carve out an hour or two. Make sure you're feeling relaxed and you're not going to be interrupted. And find the NAICS drill down table. There will be a link to it in the podcast show notes. Review on that NAICS drill down table all the top and sub-level categories. It's just a simple page on a website that lists categories like manufacturing, retail, finance, and so forth. For each one of those top-level categories, you click into it, and then you'll see another page that has subcategories, like to take uh, manufacturing, for example. Uh, Bakeries is actually a subcategory of manufacturing. So that's what I mean when I say look through the top and sub-level categories. As you do so, just notice what seems interesting. What calls out to you in some overt or even subtle way? Add these verticals to your inventory. Give them a credibility and access score of one if you happen to be a complete outsider to the vertical, and it's likely you will be because these may be verticals you've never worked in before. Next, work in any entrepreneurial theories you have as best you can to your inventory. So those may not be easily described by saying, you know, what vertical they're in, but do your best to add those to the inventory so that your inventory is a complete picture of previous experience, areas of interest, and entrepreneurial theories, if you have any. It's totally totally fine if you don't. Naturally, the risk score for any entrepreneurial theories you have and any verticals you've never worked in before is going to be quite high. Next, you're going to set a risk threshold. Your completed inventory is a tool you can use to surface patterns. I know as you're listening to me read this, your reaction is probably, well, thanks, but I don't need a dumb spreadsheet to show me the patterns in my own project history. I hear you, but I've lost count of the number of workshop participants who have reported greater clarity and confidence about the head starts in their past client work after doing this inventory. It's an extremely simple tool, but it's a powerful one, so don't be too proud to try it. About those patterns... If you sort your inventory by the client vertical column, for example, you'll easily see if there's a vertical where you have a large amount of experience. Or if you sort by the interest column, you'll group projects where your interest is high. The same thing with access or credibility. So that's what I mean when I say the spreadsheet, the the inventory is a tool for surfacing patterns. I have a proprietary algorithm I use for combining the numerical scores for interest, access, and credibility into what I call a risk threshold. Actually, algorithm is a bit of a stretch. (laughs) I'm really just adding and subtracting according to some simple heuristics. Higher credibility, higher access, and higher interests each reduce the risk of pursuing a given area of focus. Lower scores in the area of credibility, access, or interest increase the risk of pursuing that area of focus. So the simplified version of the formula that I use 
is to add up the scores for access, interest, and credibility, divide by three. So in other words, average those scores. And we have a simple three-point score for risk, the risk of potentially pursuing that, that approach in your business, that area of specialization. So do this right now. Set up a new column in your inventory to handle doing this math. Each project should have its own risk score, meaning each row should have its own risk score. A project with an access score of one, an interest score of three, and a credibility score of two would have a risk score of two. Aha, I hear you say. I knew all along this was a subjective, unscientific process. Those numbers are totally subjective. They're not objective absolutes. You're right. But trust me, this is a hell of a lot better than guessing or, as I've often jokingly suggested, throwing a dart at a printed-out list of specialization options. This process really does deliver clarity if you give it a chance. The next step is to narrow down your inventory. I have a proprietary risk profiling tool I use with clients. I combine the DISC work personality assessment tool, questions about past behavior with money, and questions about financial decision-making derived from prospect theory. There's a partially subjective aspect to this tool, which is why I can't just spell it out simply right here, the way I did with the risk threshold calculation above. But you can at least roughly figure out your own risk profile. Remember those two simple definitions. Risk tolerance is your emotional response to risk. Risk capacity is your financial ability to withstand a loss. Those two are not necessarily correlated. You will find people who are very comfortable with significant amounts of risk, meaning they have a high risk tolerance, but they might be very negatively impacted by a bad month or two in their business, which means they have a low risk capacity. And you can easily find the inverse in the wild. So your risk profile is the combined effect of your risk tolerance and risk capacity on your decision-making and behavior. To assess your own risk profile, do the following. It's a simplified version of what I use in my work with my clients. Quantify your risk capacity. If you landed no new clients starting today, for how many months could you meet your financial obligations without taking on debt? This number of months is your runway. Your runway is the primary contributor to high risk capacity, though other things like flexibility to quickly reduce expenses also contribute. Let's again use a three-point scale here so you're not saying, well, if I have seven months of runway, that's the number. Instead, if you have zero to three months of runway, give yourself a one. Three to six months of runway, give yourself a two. Six months or more of runway, give yourself a three. Next, look at your risk tolerance. For our purposes here, let's call spending money with the intent of making more money, either directly or indirectly, an investment. So this would include things like you spend money on training or professional development or going to a conference. Those are all investments, even though you may not directly make money from them. You might indirectly make money from them. Remember as objectively as you can how you have invested money in the past. A willingness to invest is correlated with a tolerance to risk. So rate yourself on a three-point scale. If you have pretty much entirely avoided investing at all, give yourself a one. If you have invested what, what by your standards are modest sums of money, a two. And if you have invested what by your sta standards are large sums of money, give yourself a three. 
The third and final part of assessing your risk profile is to think about how you react to uncertainty. To what extent does future uncertainty create stress for you? This is a subjective measure, so do your best to assess your stress response to uncertainty. Use that three-point scale again. So if uncertainty just doesn't stress you out at all, give yourself a three. If it stresses you out some, give yourself a two. And it stresses you out a lot, give yourself a one. At this point, you should average these three scores to keep us on our three-point scoring scale. If you sum them up, you could get something as high as a nine, and that throws off the math. So just average them to get to stick with that three-point scale. So at this point in the process, you have a risk profile score on a simple three-point scale. It may be a fractional number, but it's on that simple three-point scale. So let's call a one on this scale low risk profile, two a medium risk profile, and three a high risk profile. Brilliant, right? <laughs> Again, this is not fancy stuff. It's a useful way to narrow down the list of options on your inventory to what in some cases will be a much more manageable number of options. So what you do next is you take your risk profile score that you just calculated and eliminate on your inventory any specialization options that exceed the risk profile score. So you've got that risk score for the, the each specialization option, which is the combination of interest, access, and credibility. That gives you that three-point number. Eliminate any options where that number is a larger number than your risk profile. So if your risk profile is 2.3, you will want to eliminate all the options for specialization on your inventory that have a higher risk score than 2.3. Let's talk about validation. Next, I suggest you undertake some very simple market sizing. You want to be sure any potential area of focus has a Goldilocks size, not too small to support your business and not so big that it makes you a small fish in a large pond. David Baker has great data and conclusions in this area, so I'll just reference his published guidelines. You can find a link to this in the show notes. You want a market with 100 to 200 competitors and 2,000 to 10,000 prospects. Competitors would be other specialized firms, and prospects would be companies big enough to afford you and small enough to take you seriously. If you're pursuing a vertical focus, market sizing is relatively straightforward. If you're pursuing a horizontal focus, you have to ask, how do you know who your prospects are? Long term, they're probably going to find you via really strong content marketing that you'll produce, but you don't have that yet. For example, if you're Corey Quinn from the previous example, and your market is companies who need their horrifying AWS bill fixed, how do you know how many companies that is? Well, not to be an ass, but you could hire me to help you figure out. But aside from that, you could use a few market sizing proxies, the easiest of which is the conference hack. Any horizontal market that has a national-level conference or association is likely to be a right-sized market. The conference or association will not necessarily map exactly to how you define your specialization, but if there's a rough fit, you're probably okay. For example, consider Corey Quinn again. How could he have known there are enough companies that need help with their AWS bill? Well, there's the AWS reInvent conference. It's not a conference about AWS bills, but it's a conference about the platform. 
and it's a big one, somewhere over 40,000 attendees. This is a rough proxy for the size of the AWS market, especially if you start to triangulate the size of the AWS reInvent conference against similar conferences for other cloud platforms from Google or Microsoft. So with a data point like this, our hypothetical Corey knows that he's not specializing in a platform that very few companies use. In other words, there's a sign of life there. You can exclude from your inventory anything that would point you to a market that is definitely too small, and you can refactor any area of focus that is too large by making it more specific. For example, the market vertical of manufacturing is almost sure to be too large, but pharmaceuticals, a subset of manufacturing, is probably not. If you have items on your inventory that represent an entrepreneurial theory, then you may be in terrain that's a bit too complex for this article to help you navigate. Hopefully the main ideas help anyway. At this point, you may not be ready, but you're at the point in the process where you make a decision. So at this point, I've offered every reasonable way to narrow down your inventory. I can't know what you started with, so I can't know how lengthy your short list is now. But if you're like most of the clients I've helped through this process, it's shorter in a way that clarifies your thinking, and it increases your confidence about your decision. You have not delegated your decision to chance, and you haven't made it using an algorithm. Instead, you've used at this point a pragmatic process to generate and then narrow down a good list of options. In other words, you've taken what is usually an emotional and subjective process and added a layer of objectivity. You may at this point want to perform additional market research or validation before you actually change anything in your business. Now, depending on your personality, this will either be a form of procrastination or a good investment in the quality of the decision. If you have historically used research in order to procrastinate, that's probably what you would be doing here. So if that's you, instead of doing additional wide-ranging research, consider the following. Reach out directly to some prospects in the potential area of focus. Ask them this question and see where their response takes you. Ask them, who do you have helping you with, insert whatever thing that you are considering specializing in, whether it's their market vertical or some horizontal problem or a combination of the two? Who do you have helping you with this thing? If you have questions about applying this guidance to your business, please feel free to contact me at philip at philipmorganconsulting.com. And if you'd like my direct help navigating this transition from generalist to specialist, my services may be a fit. Go to philipmorganconsulting.com services. Hey, it's Philip here. I would really like to reach more people with this podcast. One way you could help with that, if you're interested is to think of one person you think might benefit from the information in this episode. One person that you know directly who is wondering how to specialize, is trying to figure it out, and could use some help. Reach down to your podcast player, find the share button, and share this episode directly with them. I really appreciate it.